0: All right, let's go to John chapter 2. turn in track through John's Gospel account. And um, looking at uh, kind of a transition moment in the way John is uh, recording the, the life and ministry of Jesus. And so just to briefly review up to this point, getting us to John chapter 2, the stage is kind of set for what's about to happen. Uh, John began... His gospel account by declaring who Jesus is. Beginning was a word. Word was with God, and the word was God. And then verse fourteen, the word was made. Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. Then he goes and uh, recounts some of what John the Baptist said about the Lord Jesus, and uh, how John the Baptist is constantly pointing toward Jesus. We find that. Some of John's followers, John the Baptist's followers, actually leave John the Baptist and start following after Jesus toward the end of chapter 1. And um, so now that we, we see this group kind of beginning that are following after Christ. And so what John is going to continue to do is pursue the goal that he gives us an indication of at the end of his book, chapter 20, verse 31. These are written back to verse 30, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these, the ones that he records, it says are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so what we're going to see starting here in chapter 2 is the onset of the public ministry of Jesus. And so through the rest of this gospel account, John's going to alternate between the words and the works of Christ. So we'll have situations where Jesus is going to perform a sign, as John calls them, and then Jesus is going to teach. He's going to declare something about himself, or he's going to declare something about himself, and then he's going to perform a sign, a back and forth of how this works. And this is going to track through uh, chapter 2 all the way through chapter 12, verse 19, and we'll, we'll get to that in just a minute, but... In the middle of the gospel account, you see a transitional point, uh, in the life of Jesus as John is recording it. Specifically, John is going to go through the next, next 11 chapters that we, next 10 chapters that we have. Uh, he's going to frame it all around these seven signs that Jesus performs. We would call them miracles. John actually uses the word sign. We'll talk about that word in a second. And here in chapter two, our text for today, Jesus changes water into wine. In chapter four, Jesus heals a man. Uh, who is dying. Chapter 5, Jesus heals a man who is paralyzed. Chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 men plus women and children. And then in chapter 6 after that, he actually walks on water. Chapter 9, Jesus makes a blind man see. Chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And these are kind of the end of the signs of Jesus. And then the ultimate sign of Jesus that's going to point to this is the one in whom you can believe is the capstone sign, which is going to be what? the actual resurrection of the Lord Jesus Himself. And so this what we have this morning in chapter 2, this is the beginning of signs. And the purpose of these signs is what John says at the end of the book, that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have life in His name. So these signs are miraculous acts by which Jesus reveals His power and His glory. So we have to ask the question, Coming off of chapter one, verse fourteen, the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. How does our text for today help us to see God's glory through the Lord Jesus? How do we see the glory of Jesus through John chapter two? Starting in verse one, we'll read through verse eleven. Here we go. John chapter two, verse one. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast feast, tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his sons, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and, here's a key phrase, manifested his glory. Last statement, verse 11. And His disciples believed in Him. Let's pray. Father, help us to see through this sign event of the Lord Jesus, the glory of the Lord Jesus. And so as I preach, as we receive Your Word, as Your church this morning, help us to receive this Word rightly. Lord, give me grace to preach this text accurately and truly in a way that honors the Lord Jesus and exalts the Lord Jesus. Thank You for displaying the glory of Christ. Help us to see that well this morning. We pray it in His name. Amen. The key here is in verse 11 that He manifested His glory. And so we'll, we'll take this, this event, this narrative event, this actual event in the life of Jesus and consider how this event helps us to understand and to see the glory of Christ. So the first thing that we see in the story, verses one through five, is that Jesus encountered an earthly problem. Jesus encountered an earthly problem. The setting here, verse 1, is a wedding at Cana in Galilee. We don't know much at all about Cana in Galilee. It's an obscure place. We actually don't know the exact location. So this isn't like Jerusalem or Bethany. It's not one of the the big locations that that would have been prevalent in their day. The setting is this Cana in Galilee, but the event of the setting is that of a wedding. And so just to understand a little bit about weddings here in first century context... Weddings were a big-time communal celebration, and the celebration sometimes lasted up to even a week. And before the wedding, the bridegroom and the bride entered into what is called a betrothal period, where they legally agreed to marry one another, and that agreement that they entered into with one another and families entered into with one another could only be dissolved by legal proceedings through divorce. So the engagement was more significant than our engagement in our day. Now, in, during, this, the betroth- during this engagement period, The groom was busy doing the work to prepare for his bride, doing things like building a home. Typically, he would add another story onto his father's house or another wing onto his father's house. He would be setting his affairs in order. He would be securing employment. He would be doing all the things that he needed to do to receive to himself a bride and then to begin a family with this bride. At the end of this engagement period, the marriage actually occurred. And so what would happen? is the bridegroom and his friends, say the wedding party, would go to the bride's home in this big time procession. And often this happened at night, and they would likely be carrying torches. So you kind of get the idea. And like, this would not be some somber, like weird cultic kind of thing. This would be like a celebration. Like, he's going to get his girl. And everybody's uh, getting crazy about this, and there's, there's, there's a celebration about this. And so he would, the bridegroom and the bride would then go back to the groom's place in this procession for the actual wedding banquet and we assumed there would be some form of religious ceremony as part of that event and this whole event that transpired could take up to a week and it was all up to the groom in their day joe it was all up to the groom in their day to take care of everything including the cost to make this thing happen so there's so there's the setting hit a hit a rewind button two thousand years maybe So there's the setting, this wedding at Cana in Galilee. So Jesus and his disciples, and we know Jesus' mother is there, and we're immediately introduced to this problem. When the wine ran out, verse 3, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, at this wedding, the most significant cultural event in the day, they actually ran out of wine. And so when the wine was gone, it was indication that, hey, folks, party's over, it's time to go home. But we know because this is a problem that the party is actually not over. We have a significant cultural issue that there is no wine for this party to continue. And this wine running out would have been a huge disgrace for this family, and especially for the bridegroom, right? Because he's been preparing for sometimes up to a year for this moment, and it's like, dude, you had one thing to do, and you let the wine run out. How did this happen? And so huge disgrace in some historical writings actually indicate that it was possible to sue this family for letting the wine run out. And so like some of the gifts that would have been brought to this wedding if the wine runs out, you're like, okay, well, I'm going to take that one because you ran out of wine. And so you, you kind of get the idea that to run out of wine for this wedding feast is a major source of shame in a culture and in a society that is governed by honor and shame. And so shame's coming on the family. Shame's coming on the bridegroom. There's a possible lawsuit that's coming here. And Mary steps up and says to Jesus, the wine is gone. There's no wine. But the... They, they have no wine. The wine has run out. And so Mary defers to Jesus to fix the problem. She probably had some sort of role in the event. This is possibly, some people believe this is possibly a family wedding but because Jesus and his mother were both invited. This is a small place, so this isn't like a big to-do wedding and a big to-do place where everybody can come. And so they were on the invite list. And so Jesus, Mary is deferring to Jesus, who is her eldest son, to help out the situation. She's possibly deferring to him because she's a widow at this point. We know that, we know that Joseph died, um, at some point before, uh, the death of Jesus because he's handing, Jesus hands Mary over to some of her friends to, to some of his friends to take care of. So she's referring, deferring to him because she's a widow and possibly, and she's been trusting Jesus to actually care for the family up to this point as an eldest son. He was stepping into that provisional role. Or she could be prompting Jesus to do the work of a Messiah here, where he's not performed any miracles based on what John is telling us here. He says this is his first sign, but she knows that this, like, I mean, an angel told her, hey, you're going to have this baby, right? She knows there's something significant, significant about this baby. So she has some inclination that Jesus can, you know, pull some heavenly strings here and make some things happen quite possibly. (laughs) We don't know the true essence for her, but we know that she goes to Jesus as the source of remedy and so she says to Jesus the wine is gone look at how Jesus responds to her verse 4 woman what does that have to do with me? younger children don't try that culturally it's not going to work for us especially for my children in the context Jesus is referring to Jesus not referring to Mary not in a derogatory way he's not saying woman back off it would be, it would be the equivalent of us saying ma'am. Or in a different culture, maybe my lady. Something like that. It's, it's a term of respect and endearment, but it's not, but it is not a term, a motherly kind of term. And so what Jesus is doing here, as he's engaging in this earthly problem, is he's indicating that a new relationship is being established. And he's beginning to d- differentiate based on his mission that he's free from human and earthly agenda. And so he's going to say in Matthew, Well, who are my brothers and sisters? My brothers and sisters and my mother, they're the ones who do the will of God. And so he's, he's clearly delineating as this first sign starts to occur that I'm not doing this on your agenda. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a heavenly, heavenly task boy to take care of things that you want, but he's doing it in a way that's respectful to his earthly mother. And then he goes, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So what in the world does he mean here? Like it's not the time to do this? What is this hour? This hour, as we see throughout John's Gospel, is the time of Jesus' death and glorification. So, we're gonna track through and look at some of these other phrases that refer to the hour. So go to John chapter 7 and verse 30. It's a common thing that Jesus says this hour. John chapter 7 and verse 30. And so just to kinda of let you know, Give you spoiler alert here again. As we keep going through this week after week, you're going to sense a tension that's going to consistently build each week as Jesus starts to perform miracles and speak truth and perform miracles and speak truth. And the religious establishment is not going to like that at all. And they're ultimately going to be the ones who are going to enact events that are going to, that are going to unfold toward the death of Christ. And so this is coming. There's, there's a question in chapter seven. Could this really be the Messiah? So John chapter seven. And verse, verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So there's John chapter 7 verse 30. Skip over to chapter 8. Chapter 8 verse 20. Jesus just declared, I'm the light of the world. He believes in me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John chapter 8 verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So go to chapter 12. So we see a couple statements there. as John's recording about the hour of Christ not yet come. In chapter 12, in verse 23, you see major transition. Chapter 12, verse 19 to chapter 12, verse 20, you see a, a huge transition in the, in the tracking of John's gospel. So chapter 12, verse 23, look at it. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come. "...for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, it must follow me where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him." Verse 27, "...now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour?" But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. So you see, John has said up to this point, they didn't arrest him. They didn't arrest him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Because his hour had not yet come. Jesus himself now in chapter 12 is saying, my hour has come. The hour has come. You go to chapter 13 and verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. So John's telling us there that the hour that he's talking about all throughout his gospel account is the time of the death, burial, and the ultimate resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus. Get over to chapter 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he had told his disciples some things that are going to happen as he leaves the world, as he leaves the earth. And in verse one of chapter 17, when Jesus spoke in these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, father, the hour has come glorify your son that the son may glorify you. So there's this there's this hour that is significant throughout John's gospel and John is specifically connecting these dots that refer to the same hour that Jesus talks about in chapter two and verse four. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What is going on here? What is going on here? At the onset of John's Gospel account, John and even the words of Jesus are reminding us that Jesus lived and died according to God's calendar. Nothing expedited the death of Christ. Before the beginning began, the time and date, context, setting, situation for the death of Christ was set on God's calendar and so Jesus is saying my hour has not yet come and so we don't look at as one writer said we don't we're not to see the cross as a sad accident ending a life full of promise and hope instead we're to understand the cross and resurrection as a culmination of God's plan in Christ so Jesus responds back to chapter 2 to his mother and says woman what does that what does this have to do with me my hour has not yet come And so how does Mary respond? Verse 5, she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I don't know how this thing is going to play out, but do whatever he tells you. Her response gives us an indication that she's not offended by Jesus' response. Okay, it's it's clear. She, She didn't call him out as her son and say, hey, you don't talk to your mama like that. Right? She just says, I don't know what's about to happen, but do whatever he says is her point. And so the key for us understanding this event is to place our focus on Jesus. What Jesus does, what Jesus says. Not on Mary, not on the wedding, not on the wine, not on the disciples. This event reveals Jesus to us, and this event reveals Jesus to us through an earthly problem. So number one, Jesus encountered an earthly problem. Number two, Jesus performed a, a miraculous sign. Jesus performed a miraculous sign. Verse six, Je- Mary tells the servants, "Do whatever he tells you." And so we're introduced to these these six stone jars that are there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. So we can say just one hundred fifty gallons of potential content. And so we we have these materials, these six stone jars there for Jewish rites. Isn't that's just a weird turn of events? The problem is the wedding has run out of wine. The next thing John records is that. Not the wine vat is empty, but there are these six stone jars that are for the Jewish rites of purification, which are not related to the wine. Right? So, like we're reading it and we're like, okay, so what? What's going on here? Well, to help help us understand what's going on here with the water that's in these jars for purification, Mark chapter 7, "...for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly..." Holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and and dining couches. And so there's this there's this ritualistic religion expression that's going on here that are characterized, that are that are symbolized by these six stone pots. Now John specifically says that these are six stone pots, which would have been not all that common because a typical pot would have been what? Earthenware, right? They form it and they bake it and then they get a pot. But these are stone jars, which were better than earthenware because they were less likely to become unclean, right? They were impervious. And so Leviticus 11.33 points to the fact that these jars that were used for purification needed to be clean and consistently clean. And so what would happen here, and this actually does have meaning to the event here once we understand the context, before the meal, the servants here in the story, they would pour this water over the hands of the guests to clean them before going in to eat as part of the wedding banquet. And so think here, ritual, not hygiene. It's not like they're full of hand sanitizer and they're doling it out so everybody's germ-free whenever they go in. Think ritual here, not hygiene. And the water jars really have nothing to do with the actual problem. But the fact that they have enough water and not enough wine gives us a clear contrast, if we understand this is revealing Jesus to us, of the deficiency of the religious system of the day as compared to the abundance that is in Christ. All right? Planting that thought, we're going to come back to it in just a second. So the material there is we have these six stone jars for water. And then we see the miracle, verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Three commands that Jesus issues to the servants. One, fill the jars to the brim with water. He does not say fill the jars to the brim with wine. Why? There's no wine, right? That's the whole problem. But Jesus says, fill the jars up to the top with water nothing extra could be added to water to make it more water so it's not as if jesus could say hey just leave me just a little bit on the top because i have some wine concentrate in my back pocket that i'm gonna squirt in and then we're gonna swirl it up and then we get wine no the point of the text is when they're full they're full of water so he tells them fill the jars then he tells them draw some out and then in verse 8 he tells them take it to the master of the feast so what do they do well, they obey Jesus, and by obeying Jesus, they're obeying Mary, because Mary said, hey, do whatever he says to do. Right? So they take it to the master of the feast, and then look at verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Man, everyone serves the good wine first, but you, when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've saved the best until last. So the water, verse 9, had become wine, which indicates that it had, it had experienced a change in actual substance. Now the master of the feast, who had been kind of like, who would have been kind of like the head waiter of the event, kind of organizing everything, he doesn't know the origin of the wine, he only knows the quality of the wine. He doesn't know where it came from, and he just told, he just tells the groom, man, what a way to wrap up your wedding feast. Like on the end, and everybody's already had the good stuff, and so their palate is kind of desensitized to the quality, and so typically you would bring the the less quality stuff, but you're bringing the best light to to the end. And so Jesus' miracle here is actually a huge blessing to this couple that was probably poor, or they wouldn't have run out of wine in the first place. So Jesus performs this miraculous sign. So number one, Jesus encountered an earthly problem. Two, Jesus performed a miraculous sign. And three, by performing this miraculous sign, what does Jesus do? He reveals His heavenly glory. He reveals His heavenly glory. Verse 11. This, the first of His signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory. And His disciples believed in Him. So John here, we know he's on purpose trying to book in this story because he started the story in verse 1, remember. On the third day there was a wedding where? At Cana in Galilee. Verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did where? At Cana in Galilee. And so he's tightly wrapping this story for us. And so for this first sign, Jesus goes to an unknown couple. We're we're never introduced to Sally and Bob or whoever this couple may be. He goes to an unknown couple in an obscure place. It's so unimportant, we really don't know exactly the location of this place today. And performs a simple miracle, changing water, if there is such a thing. changing water into wine, right? Just no big deal, right? Not flashy, not much attention. He doesn't say, hey, everybody, come on in here and see this real close. Watch what's about to happen. Jesus just tells the servants, hey, fill the water pots up. Now draw some of the water and go take it to the headmaster. And they just obey. And there's a change in substance in the water pots. And so Jesus performs a simple miracle not garnering much attention but remember last week the the, the last verse we finished with Jesus words to, to Nathaniel. so look at verse 51 of chapter 1 just to if you if you missed last week let's look at um verse 47 to pick up the story chapter 1 verse 47 Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said is the same one when he said when when Philip said to him hey we found we found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? And so then Nathaniel's coming toward Jesus, and Jesus said toward, to Nathanael, verse 47, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus said, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Three days later, Jesus performs the miracle at the wedding at Cana. Look at verse 51. And he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Not pointing to the fact that Nathaniel is going to actually see like a true like ladder into heaven, kind of like Jacob. But what Jesus is pointing to here is that he's going to see through Messiah in the flesh, God in the flesh, the word made flesh. He's going to see divine communication on earth. He's going to see God on earth through Jesus. And so then, what does Jesus do? He goes right into this wedding at Cana, and verse 11, this the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan and Gal- Cana and Galilee, and manifested His glory. And so John uses this word "sign specifically, to describe what we would call a miracle. Why? sign? A couple of writers that help us to understand what he's, what's going on with, <clears throat> with Jesus' use of signs and miracles, especially through John's gospel. Uh, One writer says, it's it's characteristic of signs, not so much that they arouse wonder and are hard to explain, nor even that they are demonstrations of divine power, but rather that they point to something beyond themselves. They show us God at work. So there's there's more meaning to the signs than just water transformed into wine. D.A. Carson writes, John prefers the simple word signs. Jesus' miracles are never simply displays of power still less neat conjuring tricks to impress the masses, but signs, significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to deeper realities that could could be perceived with the eyes of faith. So he says signs, displays of power that point beyond themselves to deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith. And so verse 11, John says, this the first of his signs. Now, the word John uses there for first is not first as in one, two, three. The word he uses there for first is first as in the beginning of an action. Something is beginning to unfold. It is the first action that sets certain things and events into motion. And when you think about it that way, you kind of understand, oh, I get what's happening. I get what's happening. This is the first sign that's going to ultimately lead to what? The death of Christ. The crucifixion of Christ. The burial of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And so in this first sign, what does Jesus do? He transforms, think about, think about this. He transforms the water that was used for what? Ritualistic cleansing into wine used for a wedding celebration. And he doesn't change it just into wine. It's not like the cheap stuff. Like this is top shelf. This is the best wine that He changes us into. Remember the words of John in chapter 1 and verse 16? And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. That phrase grace upon grace we talked about a few weeks ago, John is saying grace on top of grace, grace instead of grace, kind of a replacing type of grace. And so what we're seeing in this miracle is the grace in the Old Covenant is being replaced and fulfilled with the grace of the New Covenant. So back to the sign. The sign. What does this sign mean? Why change water into wine? Because the water pots had nothing to do with the wine at the feast. In the water, in the ritualistic cleansing, the purpose of the water, we see the old order of Jewish law and custom. And Jesus comes along and replaces this custom with something far better. He doesn't just replace it water for water. He replaces it water for wine. And so what is Jesus doing? Jesus is indicating that man's attempts to be clean before God are what? Insufficient. Because what did you have to do the next time you're around water? You had to be cleaned again and be cleaned again and be cleaned again. And so therefore God comes to man. What is the ritualistic cleansing? What is the attempt of that? It's, It's man's attempt to be clean before God. And so then Christ comes and... Significant in this miracle of changing water into wine and says the ritualistic cleansing is fulfilled in me. And the cleansing is no longer necessary because I'm changing the whole substance of things. And he changes the water into wine and replaces the water with something far better. And so this ritualistic cleansing that was seen as making one acceptable before God. So take like Psalms 24, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand before the Lord? Who has clean hands and a pure heart? And so the Pharisees would have taken that and really extrapolated into more than was there and said, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta wash, you gotta wash, you gotta wash, you gotta wash, you gotta wash. wash." And so Jesus comes along and says, here's how you're truly washed. It's through me. And so ritualistic cleansing could never clean us up enough. And so Jesus changes the whole system. The water is now wine. And this is a sign of His glory. And so there are two results that flow out of this sign of, that we see here in verse 11. This, the first of His signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory and His disciples believed in Him. One, through this, Jesus manifested His glory. He revealed His glory, which reminds us of John one fourteen, right? Word became flesh and we what? Beheld His glory. We saw His glory. The glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. But then, look at the end of verse 11. Jesus manifested His glory, period, and His disciples what? Believed in Him. What is John's purpose in writing about the signs? That you may believe, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. So at the beginning, at the first sign that John records, he says, and his disciples believed in him. And John's probably one of the five here that's believing in Jesus. And so his disciples believed. Now think about this. The servants witnessed the miracle. Right? They're the ones who drew wine out of the water pot and take it to the headmaster. But the disciples are actually the ones who believed. And so this sign indicates the beginning of a ministry of both word and work, of truth with power. And so therefore what happens with the disciples? They believe. They put their faith in this one who just performed the sign. But here's the deal. They didn't put their faith in him just because he performed the sign. It's not like, whoa, the water to wine. That's a good deal. I won't on that. I won't in on that. It's no, they, in seeing the sign performed, they see the Messiah who's performing who's performing the sign, and they say, He's the one I'm going to follow. He's the one I'm going to believe in. And so this sign reminds us, even now, we don't have water pots. Like there, There are no water pots at the door that you had to clean up with before you come in. But in the same way that people in their day would try to, through ritualistic religion, gain approval before God, we often try to gain approval before God. And this sign reminds us that all of our attempts to get to God in our own effort are futile. Ritualistic cleansing won't get it. Believing on Christ alone will. And so three ways that this sign points to the superiority of Jesus over the religious system. One, the law, the the water. The law can point to purification, but the, the law can't give permanent relief. The law, that which is right and that which is wrong, shows us that we are what? We're actually not clean. And so we have to be what? Continually cleansed. We have to be washed over and over and over. And so it's actually a good attempt to wash over and over and over. And so the law can point to purification, the the water pots can point to purification, but they're not going to give permanent relief because we have to keep coming back over and over again. The law, ritualistic washing, could give direction for purification. You could say, hey, do this, don't do this. But it, the law could never enable the right motive or the desire for that cleansing. It was an obligation. And so Jesus comes and gives not just the prescription, but Jesus gives the power for the prescription. He doesn't just say, okay, do this. Then He also comes along and enables us to actually do this. And so He comes and He says to the, say these disciples, believe on Me. And in and of themselves, they're not going to believe on Him. So Jesus says, believe on Me, and then I'm going to enable you to actually believe on Me. And then also, we're reminded that we don't need the repeated cleansing that comes from ritualistic religion. We don't have to constantly seek the approval of God through doing right things, through not doing wrong things. We need the cleansing... A once and for all kind of cleansing that comes from Christ alone. A cleansing that comes from a love response to one who loves us is far more motivating than just a do this, don't do this reality. And only when we believe on Him, only when we believe on Christ alone, are we actually enabled to obey Him. Any obedience that is not motivated by Christ alone is self-centered obedience. And so Christ comes along and says, "Okay, the law is not negated, but the law is fulfilled in me. And what you were unable to do through the law, because you had to keep coming back to these water pots, I'm fulfilling completely. Not because I have to have God's approval, because by the way, I am God. But because I am God and I love you. And so he changes the whole substance of the reality. And so we can either keep trying to clean ourselves up through religious efforts, through rituals, or we can trust in the grace that comes only through believing on the Lord Jesus. So we can keep coming back to the water pots for the ritualistic cleansing, or we can trust that Christ is actually the one who transforms the water into wine. And fulfills the system completely on our behalf. And, and as we continue tracking through John's Gospel, we're going to see Jesus fulfilling over and over and over again all things that were ultimately pointing to what? To Him. To Him. And so, let's be reminded of the fact that in Christ, for, so, Verse 11, this the first of, these, of His signs, Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested His glory and His disciples believed in Him. And His disciples believed in Him. If we are among the group, like the disciples, about whom could be said they believed in Him, then we're made new. Completely new. If you're saved, if you're redeemed by the blood of Christ, if you've repented of sin and placed your faith in Christ, the Bible tells us that you are what? New. New. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? Not a better creation, but a new creation. Altogether new creation. The old has what? Oh, it's passed away. It's passed away. The old has passed away, Behold, the new has come. And what does that remind us? That the same way that God saves us is the way that God sustains us. Obedience still matters for us, right? It's not like we're off the hook on obedience. It's that we're actually empowered by Christ through the Holy Spirit to actually obey Him in ways that honor Him and please Him. And so we can either keep trying to clean ourselves up with our own efforts or we can actually trust in the grace that comes only through believing on Christ. In the Western American church, as a pastor of a Western American church and being fairly familiar with the church in our culture in our day, I'm convinced that we have myriads of people who are going back to water pots over and over and over. Trying to clean up, trying to patch up, trying to do better, trying to fix it. And the message of the Gospel is, and the water pots... It's been changed. It's now the wine of a wedding feast. And Christ has made all things fulfilled and new. And so, it's not about the water pot anymore. It's about the grace of the Lord Jesus that comes only through believing in Him. And isn't it true that even as Christians, even as sons and daughters, like if you say, man, I know, I'm there's no doubt in my mind I'm saved, we still have this tendency to fall back to the water pot. Don't we? We still have this tendency to, man. I'm just going to grit my teeth. I'm going to bust through this. I'm going to overcome. I keep having this problem here, and I'm going to bow my chest up and I'm going to get through this. Whatever that your, your language may not be, grit your teeth, bow your chest. Whatever that language is for you, like we understand the impetus there. Like I can beat this. I can earn God's favor. But that's impossible outside of Christ. However, in Christ. In Christ, you're a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things, including you, have become new. And so therefore, we are empowered to glorify Christ by knowing the glory of Christ. And so may it be said of us, like verse 11, that the first of His signs, Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee, manifests His glory, and His disciples believed in Him. Not just a casual thought, but a I'm willing to stake my life on this truth. Believed in Him. Do you know Christ? Do you know the Jesus of John 2 verses 1-11? through If you don't, repent and believe. It's not complicated. It is not a ritual. It is not a do this, do this, do this, do this, and that's all going to equal this. It's a And His disciples believed in Him reality. Confess your need to Him. Confess your belief in Him. And trust Him to save your soul. Trust Him to make you new. Are you a Christian? Falling back to the ritualistic ways? Of trying to clean yourself up? Of trying to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps? Of trying to do things in your own strength and power? Just be reminded. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You're a new creation. You've been made new and that's by God's power and by his glory and no one can take that away including you so let's be encouraged by this Christ who manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him